Hello, I am Roger Channon, and welcome to the podcast. Well, last week we enjoyed an amazing discussion about architecture in Iraq with Dr. Shubair Fala, and now we head all the way across the ocean to the Dominican Republic. With me here today, I have Luis Sabater Musa. He is an ambitious young architect from the Dominican who I first met several years ago during his thesis here at the University of Cincinnati. Luis produced one of the most impressive thesis projects I've ever seen. It was so relevant and well thought out. And from what I can tell, he was able to apply his research in the real life in the Dominican. Since graduation, Luis has worked to start a firm, which we will talk about, called A20 Architects. I'll put a link to their um, website in the podcast notes. Welcome, Luis. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's an honor, Roger. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, let's uh, let's start with you. And um, do you want to introduce yourself a little better than I did? Why don't you tell us where you're from and how you became interested in architecture? Of course. Well, I am Luis. Or rather, it just be Luis. <laughs> <laughs> and I come from the Dominican Republic, where I grew up and where I found I wanted to be an architect. It was actually a cool story. I was visiting the parents of one of my friends. They are architects, really successful ones here. And they were asking me about, I was maybe a year before graduation, school graduation, and and they were asking me what, what I was up to, what I was planning to go for. And I said, well, I think I want to be a dentist. Uh-huh. <laughs> and <laughs> they knew me, and they knew I was... Uh, on the creative side of the spectrum, uh, they, I was always drawing stuff and they said like, why don't architecture? And I was like, well, j- tell me about it. What, what do you do? So I was pretty open to listening to them. And, and they started by lowering the light on the outdoor terrace that we were at the time. And they said like, okay, we want to set the mood of the conversation. Uh, we're going to lower the lights, and I just want you to feel the place. And I think they got me at that point. Wow, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, that sounds intense. That would have been, yeah. If I ever need to convince somebody to change careers, I'm going to dim the lights. I'll remember that. Dim the lights, yes. <laughs> and then they were explaining to me a lot of stuff that I was going through at their home, which they designed, um, which I didn't notice before, uh, how they con- control the perspective and the compression and expansion feelings I was experiencing through the house. And it was fascinating to me uh, just to think how they previously thought about all these feelings and planned for them to happen when a user just walked through the sequence of the house. And and I said, wow, I I would love to do this thing they had me there. Very cool. So you you get drawn into architecture. Now you're in, I don't, know what it's like in the Dominican you're in high school at the time or the equivalent Mm -hmm, exactly so then you're like okay I need to go to I need to find an architectural university from that point yes exactly uh not too many options here just three main ones at that time and so it was an an easy selection pretty much after that I went to University of Cincinnati which it was I had to research a little better. I visited the United States a couple of times just to get a feel of what you were doing at different schools. I remember going to Virginia Tech, to UPenn, to UC Berkeley, 
um, to the University of Cincinnati and just reading a lot about the different programs and what you do. And I really felt in love in, with the ethos of the University of Cincinnati Masters of Architecture at that point, because it was very hands-on, really into the construction detailing and how to do, I would say, uh, traditional good architecture. It was not too experimental as the guys in New Penn, Pennsylvania, or, or Harvard or Berkeley. It was too theoretical for me. Uh, I just wanted to put together a great building and that's what I thought you were doing when I visited the school. And and I wasn't wrong. I actually, when I went there, I it it went over my expectations. Actually, uh, it was one of the best decisions of my life. I would definitely agree with that because when I first met you, you were doing your thesis project and. I mean, your thesis was amazing. Like you were so happy. I could tell you were thriving. And um, from what I can tell, the research you did on your thesis, you were able to apply right into your professional practice. Yes, it was really useful. It was a lot about uh, climate responsive in the tropics, which is where I am uh, practicing right now. So it's been very useful, all those notions. And of course, all the design intuition that came from the master thesis it's really something i live on every day in my practice i remember terry bowling uh so often uh, speaking about the little moments in the space in the architecture so yeah cincinnati was great i remember at that time also it was the program was among the top 10 in the u.s so that really drove me to look for the University of Cincinnati. I think we dropped, <laughs> sadly, but... But climbing uh, back up, nonetheless. We'll get so there again. I'll help. I, <laughs> yes. I'll be, I'll be going to uh, graduate school at the University of Cincinnati uh, next, in the fall, hopefully, assuming the coronavirus doesn't halt that, but uh, cross my fingers. Please do raise the bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll raise the bar. I'll, I'll bring the numbers back up. <laughs> but... <laughs> you can do it. All right, so let's talk about you, you graduate um, after producing that amazing thesis. And I don't know if you'll let me post uh, a couple of pictures of your those, um, excuse me, your thesis on our Instagram page, but it I mean it was so amazing. But let's talk about the, the journey <laughs> of starting your firm. So when I met you, you kind of always knew you wanted to start uh, your own practice, correct? Uh, yes. So So tell me about that, the journey of starting a firm, because... Uh, when you graduated, you know, I know you worked a little bit in California. How did you end up um, creating 820 Architects? So after graduation, I went to work for Aitlin Darling. Uh, it was a soul healing experience over there. I, oh my God, those guys are my idols by all means. And... After that, coming back to the Dominican Republic, it's a very different market here. And the professional situation circumstances here are quite different from the United States in the sense that uh, over there you have so many great places that you can work for, uh, work with, become an associate, become a principal, and actually make a good career for yourself. So it's it's a viable option. Uh, 
on the other hand, here in the Dominican Republic, uh, the profession is ruled by small practices. We actually don't have a big firm here. I think the biggest one might be a little bit over 30 people, 30 designers, and it's actually a Mexican firm. It's not even a Dominican firm. Wow. So it wasn't actually an option for me to come back and get employed in a small firm uh, as a drafter, pretty much, because there was not enough space for somebody to grow in a small firm here. So that wasn't an option. And it was also, I think what I am striving for, I'm striving to create a firm that can grow uh, beyond that small firm uh, box that we have here. I remember when I was uh, doing my internship in Seattle, it was the first time I found myself in a situation where an architectural firm could be a big office uh, that have so many benefits for the work that you do there and also em employers benefits and stuff like that. So I said, wow, wouldn't it be nice for the Dominican architects, young architects to be able to look up to look up to a place like this and feel that they have an option, a career path. And it makes so much sense because you could deliver, you, you could target for bigger projects and bigger clients if you have a more robust structure in, in the firm. So that's, I think that's the, the track I'm going to follow with A20 Architects, trying to establish, uh, probably not a big firm, but a medium-sized firm. Very cool. So when you are when you leave California and come back to the Dominican, did you have some friends at the time that you were saying, hey, you know, let's get this firm started? Or kind of what was your process? Because now you have... All right. A... Yeah, that's an important part of it. Uh, when I was in undergrad... Uh, my best friend there was uh, Fernando Salcedo. And we wanted to do the masters together. And we always talked about uh, forming a firm together. Sadly, we couldn't get into the same programs. He ended up going to Oxford Brooks in, in England. I went to Cincinnati. And four years later, we were back and wanting to do the same thing again. And that's when we started A20. We decided to join forces and start our practice. He had one employee on his side for the project he was carrying on at that point. Uh, the same for me. So the four of us uh, started the firm pretty much. Wow, that's awesome. I uh, That's very cool. I'd like to go back to, I don't know if you listen, but last week we had an Iraqi architect, Shuber Falan. He was saying it's so important if you want to start your own firm, you have to uh, build relationships, meet people that um, have a similar mindset to you or a different one that can really challenge you and uh, help you to push you and start something together great. So I think that's really cool. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. You have to trust a lot uh, somebody to join, to make a... A partnership with them uh, because there is a lot of financial intertwining you have to go through 
So trust is an important thing. And also the product that you want to put out there, uh, you have to trust the professional criteria of, of your partner, especially because if at some point you're not able to be there, let's put a good situation, you're on vacations <laughs> and important decisions have to be made. You have to be able to trust that your partner or your associates are going to do the right decisions and are going to carry out the ethos of the firm you, you're planning for. Yeah, that's great. So uh, walk me through, you, you start the firm. What are some of the initial challenges you faced when starting a practice? And um, kind of how did you go about getting your first clients? Some of the challenges is that, uh, at least in my experience, we as architects, we don't have basic notions of business administration. So we may have all the design process uh, nailed down, uh, even the construction documentation, if you have enough experience. And, and yet the most difficult thing is to get you organized in, in accounting and business, basic business administration, uh, how to budget uh, for your project, for the IRS, for the benefit packs of the employees. So it's a lot of, a lot of administration stuff to actually take on. It's funny because I thought that when I had a firm, I would be doing the design I like. And it turns out that I end up doing 70% of administration and just 30% of the design. <laughs> I, um, I, hear, I hear that from about everybody I know who, was, who started a firm. <laughs> yeah, so hopefully. Be careful. <laughs> hopefully I can bring in somebody that takes on that role for me and I can put more hours into the design part of the business. Um, so on getting clients, uh, I would say as probably most of us, we start by an uncle or a friend of the father of a friend. I was lucky enough that during my formation years, I got uh, four projects. Uh, which is Casa del Bosque, which I did with Alex. That's a beautiful project too. You got that got uh, published in in Art Daily. Yeah, yeah, it got published in Art Daily and Design Boom. Yeah, I think it was it's a good article. Congratulations! I'm, I'll have to put a picture of that up as well if you don't mind. Of course, by all means. Um, so I got that one from the father of a friend, uh, which graduated with me from high school. He was open enough to trust two students and <laughs> with his big house. And uh, luckily, it turned out very well. Very well. The, the same thing for another house in Ohio, which is the Crosset house. It was a friend of my father. And the same thing for another house in a small hotel here in Dominican Republic. Uh, so by the time I graduated, I had a small professional portfolio actually put together. And I would say in architecture, at least in the Dominican Republic, the most important thing is to do the, the job uh, the right way so you can get a recommendation afterwards. So for instance, after Casa del Bosco was built, a lot of people actually in the neighborhood stopped by and was asking, about who designed the house, how can I get in contact with the architect? Uh, 
the magazine publication actually helped a lot too. And especially the close circle of friends uh, from the owner that they go, they visit the house, they like the house. And if they have a similar plan, so hopefully they take us into consideration. Uh, so it, I would say that's my advice. If you was, if you were asking for one, do it right. So people can recommend you off of that first job that you do. That's, that's tremendous so, advice. I, and you know, the one thing I really appreciated about you as well. And if you were planning on starting a practice, I've observed that this is something great to do is kind of build your portfolio uh, coming out of school to a very realistic sense, try to stay, maybe try to stay away from the very theoretical. That way, when you are starting your practice out, you will have a lot of uh, uh, buildings and, and things that look very realistic and, and relevant. Would you agree that's good advice, Louise? Yes. And the portfolio is, it works too, it has worked two ways for me uh, in the good, I mean, in, in a good sense. Having a formal portfolio, as you said, is, is a good instrument just to send a quick email and say, hey, just take a look at what I do. I would be thrilled to work with you on your project. Um, and the other way, believe it or not, Instagram is a powerful tool. I Most of the time I'm posting the, the things I'm working on and it gets a long way. And probably three of the projects I'm working on right now just came through random people that run into my Instagram page. So I think if you want to be an entrepreneur in architecture, you have to see your personal Instagram a little bit as a portrayal of what people would get out of you because it's a marketing tool, actually. So the portfolio is not the issue version of it, but also the Instagram version of it. It's a powerful thing. That's fantastic advice. I guess I should stop posting dirt bike pictures. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> by all means, post about your passion because people want to fall in love with the with the person and then the designer. Uh, so I think it's a strong thing that you post about the dirt bike. But if you want to use your Instagram as a marketing tool, then be aware of what's the content that you're going to be displaying there. Definitely. That's great advice, Louise. So when you're starting off, how much of your initial jobs, jobs, did you go out and bid on any jobs or do anything of that nature? Or was it pretty much just all people coming to you? It, it was a mix of it. I have a strong relationship with a developer here. Um, of course, the first project, and this is, this is a good and this is a bad thing. I, I haven't made up my mind. But the first project, I have to bid on it for really cheap just to get it and get my foot into the door, if, if that makes sense. That makes very much sense, yeah. Um, of course, after we got that first project on a low price, I said, you know, this is an introductory price uh, and I just want you to pay attention to the, the level of the quality that I'm going to be uh, developing for you. And indeed, he fell in love with the final, with, with the entire process and then with the final package. Uh, I think it's an absolute advantage that our firm has that 
I was able to work in the United States professionally and Fernando was able to work in in London as well. So we have international standards that we can then in, implement here in the Dominican Republic. So the deliverable is a really high-end product in contrast with the average practice. So when they when they saw the quality of the deliverable, they they didn't even invite us to bid again for more projects. We just got them directly. Wow. Congratulations. That's fantastic. So Thanks. Let me ask you, in the Dominican, are, are you using like the international building code? Is there strict code enforcement? Or is it more similar to, say, like we were talking with Schubert from Iraq, and he was saying, you know, they really don't have code enforcement. It's just kind of... Um, a, a trust system almost it seemed like to me uh we do have a code system it's a local code system uh it's it seems that it was inspired at some point in the international building code and i would say maybe 40 years ago and slowly built up from there but yes we do have code implementation system it's not as rigorous as in the united states and it's not as comprehensive. Let's say we don't have all this sustainability or energy code compliance thing, um, nor the, believe it or not, we, we don't have climatic code implementation. Wow. So I bet that the, how can I put it? Sorry, I lost my English there. No, you're good. <laughs> so I bet a big part of the electric consumption in the Dominican Republic is due to the climatization efforts for all the buildings, uh, governmental buildings, office building, corporation buildings, even residential buildings. If architecture was to take on on a code that that could make that effort go lower, I bet would spend a lot less on on fuel consumption here i would definitely but, believe that yeah but in any case hopefully i help develop that code at some yeah. point no that's great and i think just by doing what you're doing and putting out amazing buildings is you know people are going to walk around and say hey you know why can't all of the Dominican Republic look like a Louise building. So, you know, <laughs> I don't think that's a good idea. Who knows? Maybe that would develop a standard. <laughs> but, no. Um, so, yeah, let's talk a little more about the Dominican architecture for a minute. I'm curious to know, obviously, that is a big challenge, not having, say, maybe uh, a very organized code system. But what are some of the other bigger challenges facing construction and architecture? I know you guys get hit pretty hard with hurricanes from time to time. I'm curious if you have what kind of problems you guys face there and uh, how you fix them, if you know. Well, there that's a good point, Roger. Uh, the hurricanes, believe it or not, have a profound impact in the construction system that the collective mindset of the people believe is the best to resist the, the hurricane forces. So people... Uh, I would say 90% of the people here would think that concrete construction or CMU construction is the way to go, which is a strong limitation as long for the type of buildings that you can do 
uh, because the material has its structural limitations and the quality of the craft also has a certain limitation. And if at some point you go into a concrete building, let's say in Florida, I know they have a lot of them there. Mm-hmm. You're going to notice that the small details, just the corners or the trims at the doors or just just certain small things just look a little bit sloppy. And it's because of, I mean, it's not because of the material per se, because you can have uh, an amazing crafted uh, concrete building, but it's because of the labor implemented on this material uh, on large developments. Because you're not going to put the effort to go through in a museum, let's say, which is a single piece that it's meant to look great and be crafted well against a massive uh, development of buildings or housing development or just development projects in general. Yeah, definitely. And especially in the United States, we we have a tendency to just rush, rush, rush. And, and that comes on the construction side of things, too. So. What you end up with is structurally, it's it's important the building isn't intact and things. But as far as looks, contractors are rushing through the project. You know, it's hard to get them to take an extra couple minutes in every corner to get the plaster to look perfect, to get the concrete not to have um, you know kind of messy edges and things. So I I, I totally agree with you on that. So, so I would say that's the biggest limitation on working here, that the construction system is really limited. Because even though you can propose something else to the client, in the end, they, they have the decision and they say, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to take my chances. I'm just going to go with the concrete construction. And everybody knows how to put it together here. And it's going to resist better the winds and the hurricane and all that. And so we are kind of stuck on that construction system. So, do you think what's the better alternative, wood construction? Lightweight construction, if you assemble it the right way, I think it's it's a better alternative, uh, even for the climate. Because the concrete tends to absorb so much of, of the heat and just release it out during the night. So, it keeps the, the house and the spaces warm all the time, while you would want it to be just lighter. Uh so non-capacity materials that the environment could feel fresher. Yeah, I love that. I think wood definitely has to be a larger future in our building process. Um, you know, for one, it's the only truly sustainable building material. You can continue to grow trees responsibly and you can have basically unlimited wood, but it also that's a uh, point holds the carbon very well and I think that's one of the big issues we have right now is with carbon emissions and and it's very hard to get carbon to go into that solid form but plants and trees do it naturally so to have that all in locked in buildings I think I dream about the future being somewhat related to cross laminated timber buildings that technology is just fascinating and I think might be the way of the future Oh, I agree. I always laugh because, you know, you look um Google future cities and what you get are these massive glass and concrete <laughs> cities. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I think a more realistically will eventually be wood and glass. Yes, I would agree with that. That's very cool. 
I'm glad we're in agreement on that. <laughs> so <laughs> let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the, your favorite projects you worked on. Maybe uh, introduce how you received the project and, and what you learned doing it. And I would talk about uh, just briefly about three projects. One of them was the one I was working on at Aitlin Darling Design when I was in San Francisco at their office. And is a pavilion for the new Expedia headquarters. It was just a landscape pavilion, very small project. But the ethos of the project is so compelling and so modest, so sophisticated, because it's not trying to be a flashy building just to fold in the landscape um, that enhances the reunion spaces and just conferencing center. Uh, the design process of it was really very humbling to me. I was working with Josh Aidlin and just working next to him was an inspiring experience for me, one that I look up to all the time and which I remember constantly. Because having someone like Josh Aidlin, the principal of the firm, uh, Working in, in such a humble way with all of us to put together a building that in the end was not his idea. It was everyone's idea, genuinely. Uh, it, it's just inspiring. So I would say that project inspired me in, in the process, right? And how to deal with... I mean, now that I'm the principal at the firm, how to, how to manage myself with, with my team. I think I learned a lot from him. Um, the next project I think was really thrilling was a big house here in the in Punta Cana that is just just breakdown construction. Um, the house is three thousand square meters, so that's thirty thousand square feet. So it's a massive development here in Punta Cana and it's just a family house. And it's an exciting project because we have enough we had enough space to to actually articulate the different movements of the architecture through it. I think sequence is a very important part of the narrative of a building. Mm -hmm. How you approach the site, how you approach then the entrance of the house from the entrance of the house how 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 you approach the public spaces and then how you how the movements of the architecture slowly guide you to the ocean in this in this case i'll send you some images so you can better understand what we're talking about but i think it's the most important project we've worked on so far and i'm dying to see it built already <laughs> very um, cool if you don't mind i'd like to interrupt you for a second and yeah. uh, you said you focus, you used the word narrative of the architecture. Mm -hmm. And I think you do that so well. Um, it is so hard to look at a building and sort of get a story from it just by looking at it. And I think that is so impressive that you're able to, you know, I, I see your designs and I'm like, well, there's, there's a story here. Uh, it, it kind of is, is there's a, it takes you along a journey. And I, I love that, man. Thank you so much. In part, I owe that to Terry Bowling, you know? Yeah, and uh, 
we'll hope to get Terry Bowling on the podcast maybe next week. So. Oh, I I I'm gonna be the first one to listen to that one. <laughs> he I remember in his design studio, he it was six years ago already, which is crazy. Um, he was telling about the tale that the detail tales, uh, which is a Frascari text, I believe, but. His studio was about developing a story from a detail. So rather than going to the traditional process of first conceiving a building party and then working from the macro scale down mm. to the micro scale, he was doing it the opposite way. And that exercise is something that, that I carry with me in every design I, I am working on right now. Um, it's... It's not that I start from the detail, it's that I work all the scales at the same time. Uh, so a lot of the narrative on on the projects that you see have a lot to do with the consistency of those details and the consistency of some proportional uh, system and some materiality concept that we have. Uh, and that tied together with the sequencing of the spaces, how you go from one space to the other and the relationship of them and the transitions between them are as important as the spaces themselves. We, since we don't have these harsh winters ever, or even cold days, we don't have cold days as much we have rainy days, uh, we're able to, to relate a lot to the exterior spaces and the interior spaces seamlessly. So, I don't know, a quick sample, just to go from the kitchen to the to the dining table. We love to break the architecture and make you walk through a garden space just to disconnect your state of mind. And it's something that we're able to do it because of the climate condition that we have here, uh, which is great. But it's also an architectural uh, statement. Uh, which I think it's it's becoming a trend in, in our projects now that I talk with you. I haven't realized this, but uh, the connection with the nature and those breaking spaces, it's, mm -hmm. it's part of that narrative, I would say. That's very cool, Louise. Great, great, um, great example. So let's talk a little bit about how you manage client budget versus expectations. Do you, I mean, has that been a challenge starting off especially when you're you do some very let's say eloquent luxurious design i think there's an issue there there are two issues when it comes to client budget in the beginning the client comes with an idea of the program they want to develop and the budget that they have for developing this program mm -hmm. and so that's an easy one because I say, okay, if you have uh, these many areas and you want these many spaces, uh, you're talking about this amount of, of square footage, right? Mm -hmm. and, and if I do a simple uh, rule of thumb, by the looks that, that you're going after, it's going to go at this price per square foot. So you're talking about this much investment just to have all these spaces at the level of quality that you want. So that's an easy one because the client immediately faces the, the reality of, of the idea that they have just in schematic numbers. 
they can quickly know, okay, I'm talking about a million dollar house here and I was just planning on spending half of it. So I have to cut down on the program or I have to cut down on the quality of the work. So that's an easy question. The I think the hardest one for for me as an architect, and I'm since the practice is very young, I'm still trying to get the hang of it, is the additional costs during construction. Mm. Uh, because we prepare a, a bid set, we bid it, and then the, and I think this happens in the United States too. The contractor that wants to win the the contract of of the project, they would beat out with just the basics, and maybe they don't necessarily read all the details or read all the specs that that we're providing, and and they make a commitment to a price to a low price that it's actually not real, and then during construction they start putting a lot of additionals and I have to be in constant battle with the contractor. Uh, and it becomes kind of an adversary role that, that I do not enjoy, mm. uh, because I have to be constantly saying, okay, you cannot charge this additional because in the set of plans that you bid on, you had this information. It's not, it's not new. So it has to run through your pocket, not through the client's pocket. And then the contractor would would go around to the client and say, this is a young architect. He just know what he's talking about. He uh, Things cannot be built the way he put it on the plan, so we have to do it differently. So it has to be an additional cost and blah, blah, blah. And, and it's an uncomfortable situation. Uh, most of the time, the client understands uh, that this is part of the circumstances of developing a project here in the Dominican Republic. Um, uh, but it's a stressful situation for the client. So so at some points, they just cannot take take it anymore and, and they go on a rampage of bad feelings with the, uh, with the architect and the contractor and then it's not a nice feeling. So I think I have to learn something about contingencies and just advising the client that, you know, even though they are quoting the work to be built for this price, I would suggest you to think about it as 20% higher than this, just because of the previous experiences. That's that's great advice. And I've just started to dabble in residential architecture myself. I should clarify, I'm not an architect. Don't have a license yet, still a designer, but I have been helping out on some projects and I cannot for the life of me figure out how to get a very accurate um, initial estimate out there. You you know, you can calculate building material costs, you can calculate price per square foot, but there always seems to be something that it's like it's easy to miss in, in that final budget and, or during construction. And you're so right. That is, if anybody knows how to... Um, do that efficiently, send me an email and we'll have you on the podcast. Well, there's a really useful advice that I can give you for that, mm. and which is to double check your estimate at the end of each phase. So at the end of preliminary design phase, you're going to have a preliminary budget based on square footage per cost, right? 
But then at the end of schematic design, you already have construction system selected. You already have uh, major components of the building as the AC units or some general strategies that you can quote better. And you also have a uh, specific square footage for the house, for the open space, I mean exterior spaces, or for spaces that are gonna be well finished as the living spaces versus the spaces that are, are not gonna go at full cost as the garage or the basement. So you can get a, a better estimate at that point. And then at design development, you can get a person to make a a more professional uh, estimate for you. And just at the end of each stage, you of each phase, you get a different estimate and then you can work your architecture from there and just confirm that you're still within the client's budget before you move on into the next phase. That's fantastic, Luis. I'd be kind of curious to know just how you manage the growth of your practice versus the work you take on. Well, uh, so far we're a small practice. We're just uh, six people in the office. So the, the first answer is that we want to grow. So the expectation is to grow. And I'm saying this because some people, some firms would rather cap their growth. Let's say we don't want to be more than 20 designers because we don't want the firm to, to stop feeling like a studio. Mm. So we don't have that uh, situations yet. So the first, uh, the first answer would be we want to grow. Uh, the second thing and more practical thing is that you manage the growth of the firm in relationship to the budget that you have for the projects or the load capacity. In terms of budget and work capacity, if I was to put it in an example, um, I need to have the necessary income to afford to have more people on board to expand the team because I have to be able to pay all the things that go along with an associate, right? Um, so that's an easy question. If we don't get more projects, we cannot grow. If we get more projects, then we can grow. Then is it necessary to grow or not? Uh, it's more of a practice management question because uh, Let's put it this way. Last year, we did 16 different projects, uh, mainly five people. And we were able to do that because the projects stagger a lot. Not all of them are on deadline at the same time. Not all of them are on the design phase at the same time. I mean, there is a lot of stalling in a project. Once you submit to the client, they take their time to to give you a response, to get you their comments on the design. Uh, when you submit to the city agencies, they take quite a while to review the documents and get back at you with minor changes. So at that point, you can increase the workload on another project, uh, which is in a schematic design phase, uh, for instance, or, I mean, you, you get the point, you, you stagger mm -hmm. the efforts. Uh, so no. at some at some point, uh, you have to be a good project manager to foresee where the deadlines of the different projects are. So you don't need to increase the 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 number of team members if you want to make efficient for the financial part of the firm. 
to make the most with the less without sacrificing the quality. So it's kind of a financial question what you're asking, I would say. Yeah. It's a, it's one depending on the financial analysis of the no, project manager. No, that was that was that made perfect sense. That was a great answer. Thanks, Louise. Um on with uh two more questions here. My first question is, do you have any advice you'd like to give maybe students listening to this podcast or other young professionals that you wish uh, somebody would have told you early on? Yes. Architecture is is stressful. It can be really stressful. And you, you need to have a lot of stamina to go through it. Um, it's a long process and it's a lot of work. So you better love it and you better enjoy each part of it. You better enjoy uh, when you go out to the... To to the paper shop, how do you say that? To the store where you buy the supplies, to the supply store. Ah, yeah. Okay, enjoy that part. Enjoy selecting the paper. Enjoy selecting your pen. Enjoy sitting down at your desk with a blank page. Love that moment. Love it when you don't know what you're gonna do, and then love it when you start designing. Love your sketch. Love when you go from the sketch to the computer. And then when you present it to the to the class or to the professor or to your client, if you don't enjoy each part of the process and transmit that joy to the others around you, uh, then it's not worth it. I think that's Louise, my advice. You nailed that question, man. <laughs> I I couldn't have answered it better. That is that was great. Good, Good job. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a star architect you look up to? Not exactly. I take inspiration from many architects, but I don't think they are star architects, if, if that makes sense. I take a lot of inspiration from Maitland Darling, even before I was part of their team. And I take a lot of inspiration from Olsen Kundig. I think they might be a little of a star architect. Mm -hmm. And Renzo Piano is, of course, oh, a star yeah. architect. He, he's fantastic. Like, so the, I'd like to track him down and get him on the podcast. I wonder if he <laughs> speaks English. <laughs> yes, he does. Oh, good, good. Beautiful Italian accent. <laughs> Louise, this has been fantastic. I think we learned a lot, and I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. And you are definitely going to have to come back on in the future after the firm grows a little bit and give us an update. And we'll see if everything you say uh, you st stays as you said it. So I appreciate that. Do you have any other messages you want to share with your listeners where they can follow you on Instagram or anything of that nature? Well, thank you so much, Roger, for having me. Uh, I think it's truly an honor to be considered, even though I'm so young and our practice is so young still. Uh, by all means, uh, everyone feel free to reach me out. I love questions. I love to help out people with uh, design problems. So Sure, you can follow me on Instagram. I think Roger is going to have it on, yeah, on the we'll, description of the podcast, right? Yeah, we'll do that, and uh, we'll we'll put that in the podcast description and uh, along with your website link to A20 Architects. Okay, everybody yeah. stay safe with the virus. Thanks, Louise. I really appreciate it, and uh, everybody have a great day. Thanks, Roger. Bye.